Hello, I'm John Rossi. I'm a touring drummer with a love for all things animal. When I'm on the road, I spend as much time as possible visiting zoos, aquariums, rescues, and rehab facilities. Now, I want to share those places with you. I'll be talking to keepers, vets, conservationists, volunteers, anyone who is as passionate about animals as I am. Join me on my Ross Safari. Hi, hello, how are you? Welcome to a very special bonus episode of the Ross Safari Podcast. I am recording this episode very specifically in response to an opinion piece that was published in the New York Times yesterday. Entitled The Case Against Zoos, it presents, well, The Case Against Zoos. And to be frank, it presents a rather flimsy case. So I thought I would present the case for zoos here by dissecting the article as published. I realize this actually may be a bit of a waste. If you listen to my podcast, you're probably already a fan of zoos and aware of the reasons this article was so unfortunate. But maybe you can share this episode with people who do agree with it. Or if you're a keeper whose family or friends have reached out to you about this article and you just don't feel like you have the time or mental energy to craft your own response, you can send them a link to this episode. In case this is your first time listening to the Ross Safari podcast, let me introduce myself. My name is John Rossi, and I'm a professional drummer who is also a great lover of zoos, aquariums, and conservation organizations. I started this podcast almost a year ago to interview the amazing people I've met at those institutions and to learn more about them. I want to make it clear, however, that I do not work for a zoo, get paid by a zoo, or anything like that. I am a volunteer for Red Panda Network, a conservation organization, but I'm not paid by them. And to be clear, everything I say here is me speaking for myself, not Red Panda Network or any other organization. I wanted to explain that because the truth is, I have no stake in this game. Sure, I I love zoos and I, I love making this podcast, but the reason I love zoos is that I have discovered by visiting over 140 institutions and getting to know the people at them, how amazing zoos are. Were I to go to a zoo I felt was not doing a good job, or were I to discover that zoos actually were bad for animals, I would happily leave them in the dust, without a career loss or financial implications. Actually, that's that's not true. The amount of money I would save from deciding I didn't want to go to zoos would probably make a significant positive impact on my savings account. But all joking aside, I am now a conservation educator and lover of zoos, but I was not always this way. It was only through assiduous research and interactions with so many people who work with these animals that I became a true fan of zoos. I started this journey as unbiased a judge as there can be, and it was only through that journey that I fell in love with these institutions. One final note before we get to the article itself. When I talk about zoos in this podcast, unless I state otherwise, I am referring to accredited facilities through the Association of Zoos and Aquariums or the Zoo and Aquarium Association, the top accreditation bodies for zoos in the United States. There are obviously roadside zoos, places like you may have seen in the Tiger King documentary, that are very problematic. 
Most accredited zoos loathe that these places exist and often end up having to help clean up the mess left once those places are shut down for animal health violations. All that said, let's look at the article, shall we? Of course, whether or not you want to give the actual article clicks by going and reading it and reading along is up to you. I do my best to summarize the points made in the article, but I also do believe that it's important to, you know, fully read something if you want to have thoughts and opinions about it. So um, how you handle that is up to you. You can definitely listen to this episode without reading the article, or you can read along and then listen to what I say each segment, however you want to handle it. All right, let's get to it. The article itself is written in the opinion section as a guest essay. To be clear, this means the Times chose to present this as written without the editorial checks or journalistic integrity applied to reports done by the staff at the paper themselves. The author is Emma Maris, an environmental writer with a master's degree in scientific communication. I could not find anything in my research into what experience or education she has that would help her understand the world of animals or animal care. That is not to say there is none, but if there is, a few hours online wasn't enough time for me to uncover it. Maris is the author of a book entitled Rambunctious Garden, Saving Nature in a Post-Wild World. She has a second book coming out later this year entitled Wild Souls, Freedom and Flourishing in the Non-Human World. This book presents a, quote, new vision for our relationships with and responsibilities towards the planet's wild animals. Obviously, this article is being used to promote the upcoming work. While I have no problem with promotions, it is important to note going in that the author has an agenda, and it isn't just writing this out of concern for the animals found in zoos. The article begins with a paragraph implying that we have been captives of the pandemic for a year plus and that maybe the struggles we have experienced in that time should lead us to reevaluate the captivity of animals in zoos. Right off the bat, I take issue with this because it is comparing apples and oranges. In most cases, animals in zoos do not come from the wild unless they are rescued and rehabilitated animals that are deemed unreleasable and thus able to live out their lives in zoos rather than, you know, dying in the wild. The problem most people had with being quarantined was that it was a major upheaval of our lives, completely shattering the norms we have grown accustomed to. This is simply not the case with zoo animals. This is also a gross example of anthropomorphism, the idea of assigning human attributes to non-human animals. This is the same thought process that leads people to feel sad for animals in zoos when they are alone in their habitats, despite the fact that the species in question is a solitary species. As a conservation educator, I constantly warn against anthropomorphism when talking to people. The next few paragraphs of the article go on to share the history of zoos and... To be honest, it's not a great look, and it is accurate. I have said on this podcast before that I would not be making it, nor would most current zoo staff be working at zoos if the old mindsets were in play. Zoos, as the article itself states, have moved past their early reasons for existence. Since the article admits this, one must wonder why the author chose to spend five paragraphs on the history of zoos. Well, I can't speak for her, but the only reason I can think of is that by starting an article with a negative tale of zoos, her intention is to start to turn the reader against them. 
five paragraphs on how exploitative zoos are with an admission at the end that they have shifted their focus to conservation is still a lot of negative information. In this case, however, the information is also irrelevant to modern zoos. The author neglects to mention that fact. Maris then goes on to talk about the idea of zoos as conservation organizations. She states that starting in the late 20th century, zoo animals, quote, function as backup populations for wild animals under threats, as well as ambassadors for their species, teaching humans and motivating them to care about wildlife. She then talks about how a few zoos are known for their conservation efforts, but that, quote, this is not the norm. Well, I can tell you that it is the norm. I don't care if it's a facility as big as the San Diego Zoo or Columbus Zoo, or as small as Brandywine Zoo and Elmwood Park Zoo. The focus at zoos is always on conservation. When I spoke to Brent Spencer at Brandywine, he spoke about how the new Madagascar exhibit was designed entirely around telling a conservation story. They even included little fake sapphires in the exhibit. Why? Because lemurs are losing habitat to illegal sapphire mining, and keepers are able to point out the fake sapphires in the exhibit and explain that problem to guests whenever they are doing their keeper talks. They also chose crowned lemurs as one of the species in the exhibit because they are endangered and not able to be seen at zoos that are close to Brandywine. So by having those animals there, they are able to share their story and make people fall in love with them. When the exhibit opened, they were able to divert some of the funding for it to wild conservation, so they gave money to two programs in Madagascar that help with reforestation and wild lemur conservation. Now, this is obviously just one example that I remember from doing my podcast. It's true at all zoos, though. Signage almost always lists the IUCN red list status of every species in an exhibit. Many, many keepers volunteer their time with conservation organizations, frequently with organizations that help support the wild counterparts of the animals they take care of. And by being aware of, or volunteering for, these organizations, keepers ensure that they mention them in every keeper talk, every bird show, every chance they get. I had never heard of PASA until I talked to a great apes keeper, but I have now heard about them from every great apes keeper I have spoken to. That's why I had one of the, the people from PASA on the podcast, y'all. It, it really makes a difference. Keep in mind that to be accredited by the AZA, zoos need to have strong conservation support and also strong educational programming. The conservation support part is mentioned very briefly in the article, but very briefly. It's also worth mentioning that there are more and more zoos that are hiring full-time conservation directors. If you've listened to all of my episodes, you heard an interview with Lou Parati, Director of Conservation at Roger Williams Park Zoo. His work is incredible. He was actually featured in a book written by Jane Goodall for his conservation work. We'll get to him later in this podcast, though. Suffice to say, none of his work is visible to the people attending the zoo, but they not only pay his salary, but also give him multiple buildings and staff members that assist with his conservation efforts. 
The author goes on to state that AZA facilities report spending approximately $231 million annually on conservation projects, but immediately plays it down by stating that, in comparison, their 2018 budget for operations and construction was $4.9 billion. Okay. What Maris does not tell her readers is what operations and construction mean. Construction often means building large new buildings and habitats to improve animal welfare. Many of the newly built exhibits spend a lot of time and money to make sure animal welfare is the primary focus of the exhibit. In the recent construction of Wild Asia at the Akron Zoo, it was discovered that one of the animals did not react well to the type of glass that was used in construction. So, despite the great cost associated with it, they removed and replaced that glass with a different kind, thus taking care of the animal in question. And this kind of thing happens all the time. Also, when we see new buildings going up, what the general public doesn't often see, but what you know if you listen to this podcast, is that lots of space in these buildings is dedicated to conservation efforts and reintroduction efforts. Buildings such as the Museum of Living Art at the Fort Worth Zoo and the brand new Clayton Family Amphibian and Reptile Conservation Campus at Zoo Knoxville dedicate as much or more room to these behind-the-scenes conservation efforts than they do to public exhibits. And remember Lou Parati, who I mentioned before, up at Roger Williams Park Zoo? The zoo has not only given him staff, but also multiple buildings that he uses to help breed American burying beetles, New England cottontops, and timber rattlesnakes. All of these species are being bred for reintroduction and are not able to be seen at the zoo at all. It's all amazing behind-the-scenes work done in buildings that were constructed for that reason. And the other major part of that spent money is on, quote, operations. Well, that's a vague term that can encompass almost everything. It certainly includes employee salaries, something that is pretty essential to keeping zoos around. But the thing that is the most misleading about this part of the article is that the author does not acknowledge that both veterinary costs and feeding costs fit into the operation budgets of zoos. That stuff gets expensive, y'all. And those numbers are fixed. Low attendance? Too bad the animals have to eat and get their medicine. And you have to have staff there. Pandemic shuts your zoo down for a few months? Same thing. Maris is clearly leaving this information out, making it seem like AZA-accredited facilities only spend $231 million a year on conservation efforts, while blowing $4 billion a year on operations, whatever that means. But the fact is, that is money that is needed to keep these zoos around. And if that money wasn't spent, then zoos wouldn't be here to dedicate $231 million a year to conservation, which is a pretty astronomical sum. It's also worth mentioning that the money zoos give to conservation organizations is on top of the conservation work that the zoos do themselves. Under that big, scary operations budget is also the cost of staff members and food that go to animals that are in reintroduction programs and other conservation efforts like the ones I mentioned above. Heck, even new signage created to detail conservation efforts of a species fall under that operations budget. So a zoo may donate a certain amount of money to, say, Red Panda Network, which falls into the $231 million a year given to conservation. 
But they also put up signage talking about the work being done by Red Panda Network, which is part of that operations budget, but then leads people to make donations to Red Panda Network. Or volunteer for them. Or both. Hi, Desmi. In order to further detract from the conservation efforts of zoos, the author states that, quote, a 2018 analysis of the scientific papers produced by association members between 1993 and 2013 showed that just about 7% of them annually were classified as being about biodiversity conservation. Well, yes, that makes sense. Most people working at zoos are publishing papers that are focused on expanding the knowledge about their captive populations in order to give them the most fulfilling lives. That said, much of that information is then used by conservation organizations to inform their own papers and work they do in the wild. Colleen Adams of the Cincinnati Zoo talked to me about how working with a person who rehabilitates wild tamanduas was an incredible two-way flow of information because they both saw the animals in different situations and learned a ton from each other. Just because many of the papers published aren't directly about conservation, that doesn't mean they don't have conservation implications. The author yet again is attacking zoos for focusing on taking care of their animals as well as working for conservation. That is simply not an attack I can get behind. And you know, even when giving credit for some of the work done by zoos in the areas of conservation, the author writes in a slightly dismissive way. For instance, she states that the California condor breeding program, which almost certainly saved the species from extinction, includes five zoos as active partners. Well, that's true. But she neglects to mention that the San Diego Zoo Safari Park was the place that the original 23 birds, the only ones left in the wild, were taken for breeding. But sure, it was a partnership with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. Heck, they're the ones that captured the birds. But it was the safari park that actually did the breeding, and the staff there that put on the hand puppets of condors to raise the chicks without them imprinting on humans so they could be released into the wild. This process, which, by the way, would also fall under the operations budget of the safari park, saved the species. But the safari park wasn't just an active partner. They did it. They saved the species. So, after downplaying the conservation efforts of zoos, the author pivots to the practice of killing surplus animals by zoos, often known as culling. Now, this is not an area I am super well-versed in, as culling is much more common in European zoos than it is in American zoos. But it's also worth mentioning that, in this article, every single statistic and example given is from U.S. zoos, except when she brings up this topic— it's deceptive, written in such a way as to make you wonder if the zoos you visit in the U.S. are secretly killing off surplus animals. They are not. The European model and American model of zoos differ in a few ways. One such way is that European zoos aren't as fond of birth control, with the idea being that breeding and rearing young is natural for animals, and thus they should be allowed to do so at will. However, there is not enough room for all these offspring, and thus a culling of the herd is sometimes required. Alright, I'm not going to lie. I honestly don't know how I feel about this. I have no problem with humans doing that to wild populations when they get too large. Deer hunting season is not only tradition in Pennsylvania, but is quite necessary because those things reproduce like crazy. 
But the practice of culling animals at zoos is almost unheard of in the U.S. The AZA does allow for euthanasia of animals, but this is usually only employed for quality of life issues when an animal is too sick to recover and often after long and expensive veterinary efforts to help said animal manage its condition effectively. After her culling discussion, Maris addresses the issue of zoos as education and inspirational institutions. She states that she does not, quote, doubt that some people had their passion for a particular species or wildlife in general sparked by zoo experiences. But there's no unambiguous evidence that zoos are making visitors care more about conservation or take any action to support it. After all, more than 700 million people visit zoos and aquariums worldwide each year, and biodiversity is still in decline. Well, as to that last bit, I would remind the author that there are 7.674 billion people in the world today. Without that figure for context, 700 million people may seem like a lot, but in fact, it's under 10% of the population. So, yeah, over 90% of the population isn't going to zoos and aquariums, and biodiversity is still in decline. Shocker. Maybe we need to get more people into these institutions than to get rid of them. Also, when you consider the fact that I think I account for at least a tenth of those tickets sold—okay, okay, I kid, I kid—even in a serious episode like this, I still need some goofy humor, right? But I do hate that the author used an out-of-context statistic to make her point when the context matters. It's sloppy, but can be incredibly persuasive if you don't think through it. Also, it's very dismissive to say that some people had their passion sparked by visiting zoos. I know I did, and that's why this podcast exists and why I volunteer for Red Panda Network. And if you listen to almost any episode of this podcast, you will hear a person talk about falling in love with animals at zoos and dedicating their lives to them. I mean, look, it's obviously a biased group of people that I'm talking about here. But on the flip side, maybe inspiring entire generations of conservationists and zookeepers and conservation educators is reason enough to have zoos, even if we only represent some of the people that went to those places. The author goes on to cite two studies. The first, from 2011, was one where researchers quizzed visitors at four zoos about their level of environmental concern and what they thought about animals, stating that people who sensed a connection to animals at the zoo also correlated positively with general environmental concern. She then dismisses this by saying that the researchers reported, quote, there were no significant differences in survey responses before entering an exhibit compared with those obtained as visitors were exiting. Well, yeah. Rarely does going to one exhibit one time magically change things. Heck, I'd even argue that one visit to the zoo might not have any impact. Similarly, a child doesn't learn arithmetic by attending one math class. That's not how education works. What did the researchers expect? That people would come out of an exhibit wiping tear-stained eyes and spouting their plans to quit their jobs and become conservationists full-time? That's not how this works. But it's also not how it's supposed to work. The idea is that exposure, over time, may lead people to make small changes in their lives and then maybe even learn more. Sure, Joe may leave the giraffe exhibit and not change his behavior, 
But maybe, just maybe, Joe will go home that night and remember the drafts he saw and decide to Google them. And maybe he'll stumble upon the Draft Conservation Fund and the amazing work they are doing. Or maybe he'll be at the zoo when there is a keeper talk and he'll find out that one giraffe is named Gerald. And then he'll share that with a friend the next time he is there and think more fondly of Gerald. And then the seed is planted and who knows what will grow. The second study was also problematic. It found that only 12% of people visiting zoos were there to learn about animals, and 66% said they were there to have an outing with friends or family. The study was of 206 zoo guests, out of the 700 million that went that year. So, not exactly conclusive. But also, even if it is correct, so what? Just because the primary reason someone goes to the zoo is to hang out with people doesn't mean they can't also be learning. (laughs) Heck, if you asked me my primary reason for going to the zoo tomorrow, I would tell you it's to look at an adorable red panda. Because that is the primary reason I am going to the zoo tomorrow. But guess what? I'm also very likely to learn some new stuff. And to have other animals touch my heart and to fall even more in love with animals and conservation than I already am. And conservation educators know this. Again, you can listen to many episodes of this podcast to hear keepers, and me, talk about the fact that we love sharing animal facts with guests at zoos. Sometimes they hate it. Sometimes they roll their eyes. But sometimes they really listen. They learn stuff. They get excited. And there is no way of knowing how impactful those moments can be even if it wasn't their primary reason for going to the zoo that day. The author ends this part of the article by saying, quote, people don't go to zoos to learn about the biodiversity crisis or how they can help. They go to get out of the house, to get their children some fresh air, to see interesting animals. They go for the same reason people went to zoos in the 19th century, to be entertained. While I think this is a gross oversimplification, Again, it is something that zoos and conservation educators are aware of, and there are whole teams of people dedicated to figuring out ways to provide entertainment and education together. A good zoo exhibit can almost trick a person into learning. You know, when Danny Poirier Larson and Emily Begay put on their bird shows at Southwick's Zoo, they are showing off incredible animal behaviors that entertain the masses. But they are also talking about conservation organizations and even have birds that will fly and retrieve folded dollar bills right from guests' hands. Dollars that go directly to conservation. People may be going to be entertained, but they are also getting an education, and the author of this article presents nothing that contradicts this fact. I would argue that if you asked high school age John why I went to high school, it would be because it was legally required and because I wanted to play the drums while I was there. But I also learned, like, algebra and crap, too. That's how this works. And more importantly, that's how this is supposed to work. It's designed that way. The next section of the article focuses on stereotypies in captive wildlife. There are many definitions of stereotypy used in the fields of animal behavior and welfare, but essentially the term refers to any repetitive behavior that is outside of the normal range of behaviors for the species and does not fulfill an obvious function. The classic example in zoo species is pacing, but it can also refer to things like overgrooming, licking or biting a particular object, or rocking in place. 
The article is correct that stereotypies have been associated with poor welfare in captive animals, not just in zoos, but also in laboratory animals, farm animals, and pets. However, the relationship between stereotypies and welfare is extremely complex, and it is certainly not the case that any individual displaying a stereotypical behavior in captivity has a poor quality of life. The general consensus in the behavior and welfare fields is that stereotypic behaviors are likely a manifestation of an individual animal's inability to successfully perform some natural behavior in their environment. However, behavior is extremely complicated. And in many cases, stereotypies, once established, can be hard or impossible for an individual animal to unlearn. For example, a tiger kept in a Tiger King-style enclosure for the first several years of its life may continue to pace even after being moved into an enclosure of adequate size with plenty of enrichment. Or a giraffe who was not given enough foraging opportunities when young might continue to lick fences despite being given lots of foraging enrichment later in life. Additionally, stereotypies can be learned from other animals, e.g. a bear cub learning to pace from watching its mom, and in these cases may not have any significance to assessing the welfare of that individual. Overall, the article drawing a straight line from stereotypy to unhappy animals is a gross oversimplification. And finally on this point, it is important to remember that like any other scientific field, the people working in animal behavior and welfare research are constantly striving for a better understanding of these animals so that we can use those findings to improve their welfare. Monitoring for changes in or the appearance of new stereotypies is one of many ways that zoo professionals, including keeper and vet staff, assess the welfare and health of their animals. The fact that some individuals still display these behaviors in modern zoos does not necessarily mean they are unhappy and definitely does not mean they would be better off in the wild or not existing at all. It only means that something in their past or their environment is causing them to display a repetitive behavior for which we do not see an obvious function. The article then goes on to discuss the use of various drugs in captive animals, including Prozac and Celexa. The author claims that these drugs are given, quote, to deal with the mental effects of captivity, but there is no evidence given. The truth is that we often don't have a great amount of data as it pertains to the behaviors and mental health of animals in the wild. Heck, if you listen to my episode with the Wild Animal Health Fund, you'll find that we don't have a ton of data on animal health in general. What we do know is these drugs work in the animals they are prescribed to. We don't know that it's because of the mental effects of captivity. We don't know how many animals in the wild are suffering from the same issues that captive animals face. Animals in human care get the best health care possible. The author doesn't question whether an animal should receive dialysis or cataract surgery or any other veterinary procedures to help the physical health of captive animals. Instead, she only questions the mental health drugs given and then falsely blames them on captivity. Behavior medicine is medicine, behavioral diseases are diseases, and they are being treated by zoo vets as such. I can't believe that the stigma of mental health issues in humans is now being extended to animals as well. After this, the author moves on to spend four paragraphs explaining that zoo animals sometimes escape and detailing some of these escapes for her readers. The problem is that she assumes that because zoo animals leave their enclosures, they are actively trying to escape from the zoo. 
There is simply no way to know this, and evidence actually points to the opposite being true. For instance, in a recent article in a Zoo News episode, I talked about the escape of some primates. They were found in the woods nearby the zoo, lounging and relaxing, and when their keepers came to retrieve them, they happily responded to their calls and went into their crates with no resistance. The same is true of a gator that escaped recently, also covered on Zoo News. Uh, It was found in a nearby pond and happily returned home without incident. Many of the primate escapes that Maris discusses are simply the primates being playful, trying to jimmy locks or engage in other such fun behaviors. There is zero evidence they are trying to escape the zoo. In fact, I have been told many times off the record by primate keepers, that their charges will undo locks or figure out ways to do something that seems like an escape behavior, and then just sit by the disengaged locks laughing and pointing as their keepers come in and fix the situation. Even given a chance to get out of their enclosure, they often won't. Maris made no actual attempt to understand this behavior and just attributed it to what she wanted to attribute it to. That being said, I do wish that the zoo world would stop using the word escape. While it is an accurate term, simply meaning break free from confinement, it is often used in more colorful and negative ways. People escape from prison or from a bad relationship. You can escape from a sinking ship. I've never heard a story of a person escaping from a four-star resort where all their needs were being met, yet that is what a zoo escape would be akin to. In many, many cases, especially with animals that are not protected contact, when an animal escapes and is found, its keeper simply uses its recall or a basic crating behavior and the animal happily obliges and goes back to its home. These escapes aren't desperate bids for freedom, as the article claims. They are simply animals doing animal things. Maris has a serious problem with anthropomorphism in her work, and these paragraphs are rife with it. We do not have good evidence that non-human animals value freedom as an abstract concept the way that many human cultures do, including our own. They certainly value having choice, but like all of us, their choices are limited by their environments. It is true that, in captivity, there are different limits placed on their choices than there would be in the wild, but different is not worse. At zoos, the goal is always to give animals as much freedom to choose when and how to engage with their environment, enrichment, keepers, the public, etc. as possible, while also keeping them safe and physically healthy. Maris then asks a rambling series of questions that end up proposing her view of a world of zoo refuge hybrids where animals could truly live whatever the heck she thinks that means, and where the focus would be on the animals, not the people attending them. Which is what most zoos already are, a fact that Maris seems incapable of accepting. Whenever someone asks me the question, why not just let wild animals be wild? I know they are coming from a place of naivete. There simply aren't places in the wild to release as many animals as would be necessary to preserve these species. Even protected lands have major issues with diseases coming from nearby human populations, population growth of the animal beyond the confines of the preserve, poachers, and wild diseases such as rabies. 
The author then closes her article, proposing that the areas that are currently zoos should, once the animals are all off living in her imaginary, impossible, happy zoo refuge in protected lands that are unaffected by such issues as rabies or, well, reality, be turned into botanical gardens. She writes, quote, I've spent many memorable days in botanical gardens, completely swept away by the beauty of the design as well as the unending wonder of evolution. And there's no uneasiness or guilt. When there's a surplus, you can just have a plant sale. Hmm. I hope someone does inform Maris about the numerous plants that have gone extinct in the wild because of the plant trade, either directly to botanical gardens or because of the illegal trade that grows up around people and their desire to own the plants seen in them. I also hope someone tells her about how those plant sales at botanical gardens can lead to non-native and invasive species of plants affecting local plant populations. Turns out you can actually find guilt anywhere if you look hard enough, now can't you? Along with the issues I have with the article itself, however, I am disappointed in the many, many, many things that Maris leaves out. Her article mentions that elephants have a reduced life expectancy in captivity compared to their wild counterparts. This is true, and is a reason many smaller facilities have moved away from housing elephants. She neglects to mention, however, that many species have significantly increased life expectancy in captivity. According to a study in Scientific Reports, 84% of all mammals studied, including all of the carnivore species looked at in the study, live longer in captivity than in the wild. Most of the remaining species had the same life expectancy in captivity, or the wild. This is incredible. Some species, such as my beloved red panda, actually double their life expectancy in captivity. In the wild, pandas are expected to live around 7 to 8 years, but in zoos, median life expectancy is 14 years. And I have personally hung out with a 20-year-old red panda at a zoo, so uh, yeah, that's pretty incredible. Many zoos also look at the cortisol, a hormonal indicator of stress, and other hormone levels of their animals and can compare them to other captive specimens and even to their wild counterparts in some cases. In most cases, captivity has no meaningful effect on these levels. On a hormonal level, captive animals are not necessarily more stressed than their wild counterparts. The author also does very little to reference the incredible care that is given to captive animals. If you're new to the podcast with this episode, you can listen to any episode in which I interview a zookeeper, and you will hear the amazing work that is done by these incredible and selfless humans. Most zookeepers are highly educated, something the general public doesn't realize. To even start as a keeper, you generally need a bachelor's degree in biology or a similar subject. Also, keepers do not earn high wages. Many also have to do years of unpaid internships or part-time work in order to get a full-time job, even then earning very little money. These people are in it because they love their animals, and, unlike the author, they know their animals. I can't tell you the amount of times I've gotten to meet cool animals and go behind the scenes because of this podcast. And the keepers talk about their animals as though they are their best friends, because they are. Danny Poirier-Larsen and Emily Begay at Southwick's were able to tell me how every bird would react to me before it happened. They were never wrong. One time, when visiting the Red Pandas at Columbus with their keeper Christy Nuss, I accidentally kicked some bamboo on the ground, causing it to shift. 
She instantly told me how each panda would react and was 100% correct. These are highly educated individuals who also get to know their animals on an incredible level, more intimately than many of us ever even get to know our pets. These people would not be in their jobs if they did not know, with evidence from science and their daily experiences, that what they were doing was in the best interest of their animals. I highly recommend listening to the Hashtag Team Fiona episode of this podcast for some examples of the amazing lengths zoos go to with the goal of taking the best possible care of their animals. I could go on for hours about the amazing work being done at these facilities. Oh, wait. I have and shall continue to. That's literally what this podcast is all about. So if you're listening to this episode and you're still not convinced that this article is utter rubbish, I highly recommend checking out the rest of my podcast episodes. In them, you will find story after story of amazing humans going above and beyond, not worrying about their operating costs being too high, and taking incredible care of their animals. Despite being titled The Case Against Zoos, the digital heading that shows up on browser tabs for this article simply says, Zoos are bad for animals. No. Shoddy reporting is bad for conservation efforts. And zoos? Zoos are great for animals. The Rossafari Podcast is produced, hosted, and engineered by John Rossi. Editing and fact-checking by John and Dr. Zoe Vesley-Gross. Our theme song is Sevens by Nathan Burke, performed by Nathan and John. Interrupting John theme and additional voices by Taylor Isaac Gray. You can reach John directly on Instagram and Facebook at Rossafari or by email at rossafaripod at gmail.com. Rossafari is part of the Daydreamer Media Network. Now, stop listening to me and go visit a zoo.